Good afternoon, America. This is Todd Boating. We are live, and this is another Lessons from the Front by Carry the Load. And I am with a special guest tonight, a gentleman by the name of Michael Carnell. You may know him as a Marine if you know him, and if you don't, you're going to know him as a Marine here shortly. So I'd like to welcome all of you uh, for being patient with us. We took a few weeks off to, to get some things, uh, uh, I guess, straight is probably the best way to put it, but we are back. And so thank you very much for joining us. Michael Carnell, Marine, welcome to Lessons from the Front, sir. Thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it. You bet. No, I've, I've actually been looking forward to this. Uh, I've been chasing you around for a while. I'm trying to get you to do this. I kind of felt like a, you know, a high school you know, adolescent trying to chase a girl for a date. And I'm, I'm uh, hard to get a hold of sometimes. Well, you're hard, you're hard to get. I mean, that, yeah. I, I get it. Well, I mean, you, you told me about uh, chasing your wife around for nine months. So now I know <laughs> what, uh, you, you know, now I know how you felt. So, yeah. Well, hey, again, want to say uh, welcome, but also want to say, you know, that there are a lot of people with you. For those who don't know, you know, Michael Carnell has been um, has been battling one of the one of the things that none of us would want to go through. And and I, I don't know if you can see this, man, but I got my I got my Carnell strong on. Yeah, appreciate so, it. Absolutely. And for those of you who aren't aware, aware Michael is uh, is currently uh, kicking. Oh, my gosh, I apologize. Is kicking the snot out of uh, uh, what do we call it? Cancer. Mm -hmm. you're you're battling you're winning we're going to go over that a little bit later but as I always like to do I like to find out set a little context I want to find out who was Michael Carnell before the Marine Corps well Michael Carnell was a a, a punk kid from uh, Boston Massachusetts who needed some guidance that's for sure um I <laughs> I, I was, uh, I, I got in trouble a little bit when we were younger, you know, it's just one of those things you're growing up in a, in a city like uh, Boston and uh, living on the South shore where we did a lot of stupid stuff. You know, a lot of things that you look at today when kids do it, people overreact to it and think, oh my God, these kids are going to jail. Well, I mean, that's the kind of stuff we did when we were kids, but we were just a bunch of punk kids trying to figure out life. I mean, I played sports and everything, but you know, I just kind of ran with the wrong crowd for a little while when I was younger. And then um, I woke up one day uh, when I was in college, I mean, I went to college for about a year and a half. And I woke up one day realizing that I was just uh, wasting my parents' money. You know, I, I knew school wasn't for me. It just wasn't my thing at the time. I was at least mature enough to know that. And uh, had a conversation with my dad one day. And I said, uh, I'm thinking about joining the military. And he was like, uh, well, whatever you do, you know, don't, don't, don't join the Marine Corps. And my dad was, he was in the Army, you know, during the Vietnam time. So he was like, um, don't join the Marine Corps. So very first thing I did the next day was go to the recruiting office and it was down this hallway and it had like Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard, all in the same building. I walked straight into the recruiter's office and was like, hey, so I want to join the Marines. And he was like, okay, um, any reason why? Or like, you know, what's going on? And I, I just kind of told him, I was like, look, I, I need to join, but I need to go in like two weeks. And he was like, well, it does, things don't happen that fast. And I'm like, well, it has to happen that fast because if it doesn't, I'm going to go talk to the recruiter from the army and then I'm just going to go down the hall until somebody gets me out of here. He's like, you any kind of problems? I was like, no, my dad's going to kill me when he finds out that I joined the Marine Corps, though. So, of course, immediately, that's what I did. I signed up and uh, literally, I didn't even go to like the, the delayed entry program. I mean, they picked me up at 430 in the morning one day and were like, they called me the night before and said, you're going to boot camp tomorrow. 
And I was like, it was a Monday night. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, I'll be at your house at 4.30. So a recruiter came and got me. And I went in and did everything that everybody does at the, at the depth. I did in like 30 minutes. And next thing you know, I'm on a plane flying to Paris Island. Okay. I, I, <laughs> wait a minute. So the, the funny thing was everything you talked about happened in Dallas when, when I was, you know, when, when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And then I finally kind of went to my parents, same thing. I think I'm going to join the Marine Corps. And, I, and they said, well, I said, I'm going to join the military. And they said, well, you know, that's a good idea. And I told them the Marine Corps and they're like, well, that's not what we had in mind. Okay, so I went, I, yeah. and by the way, I worked in recruiting and I can understand why the recruiter asked you that question. Oh, he was like, oh, oh, 351, you're good. <laughs> he didn't care. He's, he was just like, you're going infantry. What are you running from, son? No, exactly. But, but why did your dad tell you not the Marine Corps? Have you ever had that conversation with him? No. And I think that if I go back and think about it, I think he thought that I was going to get more money to go to college if I had joined the Army. And, you know, my whole argument to him at that time was I'm not looking to go join the military for money for school. You know, at the time I was 20 years old, I was just like I said, I was just like a punk kid who was just, you know, running around with, you know, I had good friends and stuff, but I mean, I was running around with some of the wrong people and, getting a lot of fights and just doing stupid stuff that teenagers do. And I think my parents had a bigger, you know, goal or something they had in their head, what they thought that, you know, I would become, or I would have gotten into. I know they were really big on me going to school because neither one of my parents finished college. And they thought that, I mean, the only way you're going to be successful in life is if you had this piece of paper. And I'm sure as we find out and go through more of this conversation, people will figure out that that's not, always true and if there's anybody who's saying that they they did or they did not go to college they didn't they they didn't finish college i think my mom started college for a little while but she never finished my dad was a mechanic he got out of the army and um started working for what's called the mbta which is the public transportation in in boston and he was a mechanic forever and he he tried to get me in there and you know it's a union job i mean new england you a big time union place and I don't know. It was just one of those things that I, I didn't want to be a mechanic. I didn't want to be pumping gas. I didn't want to be doing, I didn't want to be a laborer. I mean, I knew that there was something else that I wanted to do. I didn't need a, you know, an eight dollar an hour job at the time. I mean, I just knew that there was something else I was supposed to be doing. And I had two friends who joined the Marine Corps and, uh, you know, they both loved it. You know, I mean, as much as you can love being a boot in the military, but uh, they kind of, talked me into it and, you know, watched a lot of movies and talked to recruiters. And I was just like, you know, you know, everybody, I mean, you get the guy slaying the dragon and you see the dress blues and everything. And just, you're sold right away. And they had me hook, line and sinker as soon as I walked in there. And they knew that too. I mean, so it worked out for the best in the long run though. So what was the commercial? I mean, was, was the commercial you just mentioned, was that the one that really kind of drew you to the Marine Corps? Is that why you mentioned it? I think that was just the one that was kind of being played on TV a lot when I was going in. And it seemed that I would notice it more often because it was always on TV. You know, we always commercial come on and would be that guy in dress moves pulling his friggin' sword out and he's slaying the dragon or whatever. And I was like, yeah, it looks pretty cool. But, you know, in 1998, there wasn't a lot of stuff going on in the world, you know, internationally, not or not to my knowledge at the time that I really paid attention to. So it wasn't like, today or, you know, post 9-11 where, you know, people were joining because they're like, oh, I want to, I want to do something bigger. And so it was a little different time where there wasn't anything going on. And I think that even then, you know, my parents weren't too worried. I think that they were just like, man, you know, you just have to join the Marine Corps, not the Army, not the Coast Guard, not, you know, I was just like, yeah, man, dress moves look cool and I want to go do something different. I want to blow some stuff up and have some fun. 
<laughs> I mean, nothing better to do. I mean, my, I remember the recruiter when he was like, what, what do you want to do? I go, I thought you guys just blew stuff up. And that's where he was like, oh, 351. <laughs> I had no idea. I just, I just signed a piece of paper. I was like, good to go, sir, whatever you say. <laughs> so, you know, you, really, it's, it's interesting. You, I was listening to you tell that story about, uh, you know, when you were growing up in Boston and, and it was, uh, it sounded a lot like Mark Wahlberg. I mean, yeah. he's, he's told that story so many times and, you know, it's like, and, it, and, and, I, and I say that and I laugh about it because there are so many of us that have similar backgrounds. We weren't bad kids. We weren't right. bad people. We just had no direction. And, and that was, that was one of the things that you mentioned to me earlier before we, you know, went live was, you know, the sense of purpose and the, and the direction. Um, and, and so when you got to the Marine Corps, did you find that right away or was, or was that kind of uh, evasive from I, I found it in, in boot camp. I mean, you hear hard stories of people talking about going to boot camp and, you know, this sucked or this wasn't fun. Or blah, blah. I, I don't know what it was, but about two, three weeks in boot camp, I'm like, all right, I got it. it this is all mental. Once I get that, once I got that in my head, I was like, I'm good to go. The whole sense of purpose and like the belonging. I mean, my parents got divorced when I was younger, so I was early teenager and to no fault of you know my parents at all i mean look we all know people who got divorced things happen and you know when you're a young kid you don't understand it you know so my parents were separated and i was kind of i was with my mother my brother went with my father and there was there was i wouldn't say like a loss because there wasn't like cell phones and texting and email and all that back then it was just you know the rotary phone on the wall so you know i talked to my dad a lot and he came and saw us on the weekends or sporting events and he was always there but I think that kind of growing up as a young man, it was, it was a, there was a void that I didn't have somebody teaching me of some things that I probably needed to know. And I mean, I think about it all the time now with my kids of just things that I'm teaching them saying like, this is important for me to be here. It's important for me to be able to teach them these things. And that's not saying my parents didn't teach me anything because they, they surely did. It's just, I think there was a void in my life that I needed something else to be doing and like I said, when I got to college, I mean, I, I tried it for a year and a half and had a good time. I mean, I had a good time partying at school and meeting new people and, you know, just getting into trouble and just doing mischievous things. I mean, we weren't getting locked up or doing anything stupid, but doing things that I would look at today as not acceptable. But, but it was 1998, you know, I was having fun. So I did that. But when I got to the Marine Corps and a couple of weeks in the boot camp, I'm like, man, okay, I got this. Like, I just, it was a, sense of belonging there was a sense of like you're going to earn it and you're going to you're going to be part of something bigger you're part of you know we say tribe nowadays but at the time it was always like you're part of the brotherhood you know you're part of this thing that no matter what you do everything you do impacts everybody else who's ever been in the marine corps before you today and after you and i just loved it i just felt that, that was like something that i really really needed to be involved in and it just fit my personality the best I, I like the I like what you just said and the way you just said it. it, it, it everything you do impacts. Yeah, you know, I'm going to paraphrase it obviously, but everything you do impacts not just today but well beyond today. Mm -hmm. And you know, you're you're absolutely right, especially uh, you know from the standpoint of the military, everything is so steeped in tradition and history. Um, I mean, yeah, you know, we've we've studied the really good things, we've studied the really bad things, and. And the really bad things can be just as influential and, and, and shaping as the, as the good things. Well, you know, if you ever turn the news on at night and you hear, oh, United States Marine did this, the first thing you think, you're like, oh, 
you know, it, it immediately just gets you because you're like, you're putting a black mark on something that we all work so hard to do honorably. And that means a lot to, I tell people all the time, Marines are, most Marines, we're, we're, we're cocky, we're confident, right? We're, sometimes people think that we're, you know, we're assholes, but I think we earn it and we own it and we, we love it. That's just something about our personality, but we try to do the right thing for the most part. When you hear somebody do something bad and they, and it's on the news or whatever, and they say United States Marine, you're like, you just get kind of frustrated because you're like, man, somebody else did something that messed up to make us look bad. And it's everybody who knows me or anybody who knows a Marine knows that they're a Marine. If anybody else in the army, the air force or whatever, and it's not a knock on them, but if they say U.S. soldier does something like this, if one of my neighbors was uh, in the army, he doesn't care that somebody did something else where I do, you know, Marines take that stuff personally. Every single time you hear Marine did this, Marine did that. You're like, God, man, you know, it's just now you're really getting into hurting our legacy and we take it personal. And I think, I think we yeah. should. And that's the whole thing about cleaning up our, what we do, you know, we got to make sure we take care of our own and teach people the way they're supposed to be taught and make sure those things don't happen. But, Unfortunately, yeah, I, I find myself doing the same thing. If you're, you know, if you're watching, you know, my, my wife watches a lot of discovery ID mm-hmm. and, you know, and they, they're, they're talking about this person who goes on to be a deranged killer and they're, they're you know, somewhere in their background, they were in the Marine Corps. I, you're right. Yeah. I, I cringe when I hear that. Me too. Yeah. Because that is a reflection on, on you and me. That's how we, even though it's not, we take it that way. It was, there's a show that my wife is watching right now called Virgin River, which is just, it's just a kind of a girl show. And I was watching with her last night and one of the main characters in there, uh, some guy, some capitalist was trying to get into his business. And he says, oh, I heard you were an ex-Marine. He goes, no, there's no such thing as an ex-Marine. And I was just sitting here, my wife looks at she goes, what is that really? I'm like, yeah, the only ex-Marines are the ones that got kicked out. All right? The ones who, were, who served honorably, I'm like, there's no such thing as an ex-Marine. And when you tell people that, they're always like, ah, that's you Marines being like that again. Like, no, we earned it. That's why we say it like that. You know, I mean, everybody else, different but we're we're cut from a different cloth and we have a different level of respect and honorability and stuff like that for our legacy you know that we have to go ahead and continue to teach moving forward so so you went in in 1998 and you served through when i till 2000 2007 i did nine years okay so you were you were in even though you went in in 98 there there wasn't much going on right but four years later, five years later, things started heating up. And 2003 through 2007, when you were in, there was a lot going on. Mm-hmm. So I re- hmm? I'll say, I, I, I still remember, you know, I, I thought that I was gonna do my four years and, and get out. And September 11th was what, three, three years into it. Mm-hmm. And I remember like right after September 11th, extended for like the next four years um because i knew that we all know what happened september 11th and obviously with the 20th anniversary coming up we're going to hear a lot more about it here in the next couple weeks Uh, but it obviously impacted everybody i mean it changed the world it's changed all of our lives dramatically for for the for the better or for the worse right we i remember being in medical that morning because i wasn't feeling good and it wasn't like i was hungover or nothing that was just one of those days i'm like I never go to the doctor and I'm not feeling good. And then watching while I'm at medical, watching the second plane coming in and hitting the tower and not more than like three seconds later, one of the nurses came over and she was like, you should call my name. And I'm like, 
I got to go. I go, like something's going on. And I had to go back to the command just to go find out what's going on. And I remember walking into the command and the company gunny comes walking out. And he just grabs me and we just sat on a hill, right? They had like a concrete barrier that they had put down. And we sat on the hill. They're like, anybody comes down this road, you guys just call it in and get ready to open fire. We're like, oh, shit, this got real, real fast. Like, but it was like that all around the world for all of our bases. Like it just, everything stopped and we immediately went to this whole different mode of, I guess everybody just realized like, this isn't a one-off thing. This is a major attack. And everybody just shut down and did what we had to go and do. And obviously, you know, a couple of years later going off and, and, and deploying and being involved with all that stuff was, it's what we wanted to do. I mean, I hate to say this to people a lot because they think that Marines just like to go out and fight. I'm a Marine from Boston and I, I like to fight. So any opportunity that we got to go ahead and go and deploy, do stuff like that. And I know guys who deployed like nine times. I got a friend of mine who he served like 23 years in, he put like nine times and the only, I mean, there was obviously they had losses and stuff like that, but I was always like, man, what about like your kids? Like gone for basically like nine years of like your kids' lives out of, you know, your 20 year career and they're, they're teenagers. And, that used to always kind of be one of the things that used to, I wouldn't say bug me, but it's just one of those that like, man, that's, that's not that we didn't all have commitment, but that's a serious commitment to, you know, making sure this country is safe. And I, and I think that's why, you know, there's, there's such a, a, a concern amongst those in the quote unquote 1%. And, you know, a lot of America looks at the 1%, and, you know, they, they, they're thinking about the wealthy. You know, we refer to the 1% as those who actively serve uh, in, in uniform. <clears throat> and for those of us who have been in that 1% at one time, you know, we, we don't expect everyone to put on the uniform. But, yeah. but people need to understand what you just described right there. If we had enough people volunteering to do what that guy did for nine times over nine years, then yeah. we can spread that out over so many people. It doesn't just impact a few. And so, I mean, that, that's a, that's a really interesting story. And the way you said that, I never really thought about it that way and the impact that it has on, on, uh, um, you know, on the military and on, on our 1%, if you will. So, well, I mean, you know, being in the military, what, what, what comes out, <laughs> Some of the things that always come out of the military sometimes, you know, bad credit, you know, <laughs> divorces, you know, you know, losing your homes and not being able to manage money, you know, things like that. I mean, there's always, you know, you got young kids who are getting, you know, brand new Mustangs right off of, you know, out the gate of the June, you're the 25% interest rate because they don't know any better, right? But, you know, my, my, my friend, the one who, uh, he did all those deployments, I mean, when he finally retired, I remember just being like, man, I don't, I don't know how you did all that especially when you had kids at home. I mean, I understand why you did it. And if I was still in, I would have been doing the same thing. I mean, people ask me all the time, like, what was the Marine Corps like? I'm like, best job I ever had. It wasn't always the best job I ever had. There's a lot of times that aren't fun. But when I look back on those nine years that I was in, I had more fun. I, I, did, I did more things, got to see more places around the world and just experience like life than most other people will ever do in their entire life. And I was able to do that in a quick nine years. I remember going to like my high school reunion and one time, I forget which one it was. And 
one of the people, they were like, well, like, where have you been? And I was like, well, what about you? Where have you been? They're like, oh, we, we go to Cape Cod for, you know, vacation. I'm like, you do know there's a world outside of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, right? Like so many people don't leave their home base. They don't, I mean, they may go on a vacation every once in a while, but they never leave. So they never get to understand what it's like to be in a, in a third world country, right? I can tell you, I remember, I remember we were driving through Iraq. We were driving down the Harbaugh down there and there was, I mean, we must have been driving for like two hours, seeing nothing in the middle of the desert. All of a sudden there's a shed on the side of the road and this guy comes out of his shed and he's looking at us with this, this convoy of, you know, Humvees and everything else going by like complete shock. Like what is going on? And I'm looking at him like there's a dude and a goat in the middle of the desert. He has no idea what is going on right now. And it just something like that has always sunk in with me when I'm thinking things aren't good here or we don't have this, or we don't have that. I always go back to that. I'm like, there was a guy living in the desert with a goat in the middle of Iraq, 100 degree days, and had no worries in the world. And we sit here some days, we cry and complain because we can't get a Wi-Fi signal. It just, it puts things into perspective for me when I think about people crying and complaining about this or that, that there's a lot of people who have it a hell of a lot worse than we do, or they just don't even fathom other things outside of what they see in front of them every day. They don't know about the other stuff that we have. And I can't imagine that, that guy knows anything about a, an iPhone or an iPad or anything like that sitting in the middle of nowhere. Iraq. <laughs> I tell you what, once you get through all this cancer, mm-hmm. you write a story that, that people are going to want to read. You need to name the, uh, the, the, the title of the book needs to be the man and the goat. <laughs> you know what? That's a good idea. I have a book I'm working on though. I, ever since I got diagnosed, it was one of those things that, uh, I've never written a book, but it was one of those things I just started writing down notes for when I would go in and see the doctor to say, Hey, I'm experiencing this, that, or this is happening or blah, blah, blah. It was just so I would remember when I would see him because there's only every other week that I would actually see the oncologist. And, uh, there was one day I was looking back at them and looking at my wife and go, I got, I got something here that I could probably write a book about. I said, except my book isn't going to be, you know, the cancer book that I probably have 10 books on cancer that people have given me. They're not the books that I want to read. I don't need to read some of these horror stories. My book is going to be the non PC version of like what, what sucks and what to expect. Like a very blunt and honest, this is what you can expect. This is things you're going to deal with. And the name of the book, we already came up with the name is we got, it's going to be a cancer comma. The whole comma is story's not over. Like, I'm, I'm dealing with stage four colon and liver cancer. And you know, some of the doctors may look at me sometimes and I wouldn't say they're writing me off, but I think they think that I'm only going to get to a certain point before things are going to go bad. And I had to look at one of my doctors one time and I was like, one of the paperwork in the beginning said like inoperable, incurable. And I looked at him, I go, what does this mean? And he's like, it means you can't have an operation and there's no cure for what you have. I go, well, that's BS. We're gonna have to rewrite this whole program. And he just kind of looked at me and I picked up my chair and kind of slammed it on the ground. I'm like, you guys aren't doing what I think I, you need to do. You're smart. You know this stuff. I don't, but you don't know me. And I think one of the biggest misdiagnoses in the world is belief in faith. They could tell me that I could Google it, you know, survivability. Trust me, we did in the beginning. All that stuff is bad. You don't want to Google anything cancer related because there's nothing good on there. But I think that I have strong, positive mindset. I have a wife behind me that supports me like crazy, who keeps me in the mindset. 
I have a huge support system behind me between all these nonprofits and people that we've known over years. And I have no reason not to sit there and continue to battle. There's two choices. I can either give up and just let this thing kill me, or I can continue to battle and fight this thing until I'm 80 years old, 90 years old or whatever. I just don't believe in the fact, I tell people all the time, I'm from Boston, I'm a Marine. We don't know how to lose. It's not in our vocabulary. Failure's not an option. All we're gonna do is win. So I just keep going with that. And doctors can sit there and say this, and I'm gonna sit there and say that, and we may not always agree, but we're working on it. So why not give up? I don't know how to give up. What, what do you mean? Give up isn't, it's just not something we, I, I was taught from a very young age, even from my dad, like we, we don't give up. We, we never quit. Yeah. Of course it's, yeah, it's an option. And a lot of people, unfortunately, they, they take that option. You know, sometimes they hear stage one, stage two, whatever. And it's, it's a shock. Don't get me wrong. When they told me stage four, I still remember sitting on the end of my bed and my wife coming up and I was just like, what just happened? Like we went from having a good life to it, it's all different. I mean, January 8th, our, our lives changed forever. And I can sit there and give up and do nothing about it and just take the medicine that they give me, which I don't take half the medicine they give me because I'm not going to get addicted to opioids and everything else. Or I can sit here and say, I can use this as a platform too, right? There's somebody else out there who's gone through the same stuff that I have. Right, where we're talking about burn pits or whatever, there's another veteran that's out there that's going through the same thing. I know there are. I know Wesley Black was up in uh, Hartford, and he was somebody who was on CNN recently talking about his diagnosis that he got from stage four colon and liver cancer from the burn pits. You know, he's kind of at the end of his rope right now because they found it too late. You know, mine was aggressive and they found it late, but we've been on it since we found it, hoping that you know, even though the doctors say you know, it's incurable, inoperable, that someday I'll walk in there and they're going to be like, man, your scans show that this thing is all gone. And when they ask me how, I'm just going to be like, again, you guys misdiagnosed belief in faith. And I'm not just talking about religious faith. And I'm just saying faith in yourself, faith in, you know, the positive mindset of the brain can change a million things. You know, they could tell me this, I'm going to believe this and I'm going to keep working towards this until it doesn't work. Right now it's working. You know, the, the worst days I have, are nothing comparable to some of the worst days that I've had in my life growing up. It's painful. It every day is different. Every week of chemo is different, but I can deal with this. I mean, yeah, there's days that suck, but for the most part, I go, if this is the worst it's going to be, I'll do this for as long as I need to just make sure that I keep breathing, putting food on the table and a roof over our heads for my family and taking care of them. And if I, if I help one person who sees this story or hears it and they want to, get involved and help people out, then I've done something good. Uh, you know, hopefully positively impacted the world in some way. I, I love that. They, they misdiagnosed your belief in faith. Mm -hmm. That, I mean, that's, that, that, I mean, there, there's, there's so many things to unpack there because you, you're right. I mean, that, that's something that can't be diagnosed as someone's, someone's faith, someone's, someone's will. Intestinal uh, fortitude, right? It's intestinal yeah. fortitude. I, I think, you know, in, in my family and people around us tell me the same thing all the time. You, you're going to beat this. I'm like, yeah, I'll be, I remember the doctor telling me in the beginning, like one in like 200,000 people who have your diagnosis are able to go ahead and recover from this thing hundred percent and be cancer free. I was like, cool. Cause I'm like one in a million. So one in 200,000. All right. The odds aren't stacked against me. I mean, the odds are stacked against me, but it's the cards that was dealt. I can play them. <laughs> hopefully come up with a royal flush <laughs> or 
or I can I can go all in and lose. So you know we're all in, but we're playing for that royal flush. You know we're we're waiting for the positive news to come from the doctor of yeah you, you know all my blood work and everything else that I'm going through right now is all looking good. Unfortunately, the tumors that are in my liver are just like it's all over my liver, so it's really hard for them to do a surgery because it's just dangerous because it's they're all located on top of arteries and veins that they need to access for surgery. So that's the one downside of it. Everything else, I'm like, man, we'll we'll figure this out. We're gonna make it work. And like I said that's all I can do. I don't know how to lose. I don't know how to give up. It's not in our vocabulary. It's just not something that we do. So we'll make you, it happen. Uh, I, I will tell you, man. When, when I every time I talk to you, and when I see you, you're not someone that has cancer. I know. I hear that a lot. <laughs> But but that's I think that's a, a testament to you, Michael. I mean that that's just you know your 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 strength hmm? is is so is so much that people can't even see any weakness whatsoever. And let's face it, you've got some weaknesses there that you're dealing with, but your strength is is, is not going to let that shine through. And again, that's a testament to you, Murray. I I appreciate that. I mean, I mean a lot of people. They tell me all the time, like, you, you don't look like you have cancer. I'm like, and I lost 30 pounds, you know, right off the bat, the first month. And I could see it in pictures, but I'm like, I probably need to lose probably 20 or 30 pounds anyway. <laughs> I look at it going like, okay, maybe and this was a blessing in disguise, I guess. So I lost a couple of pounds and looking good. But, you know, the hardest part is just like strength and weakness. I mean, the chemo takes a lot out of you and I can see people and they can tell me I look good and stuff. And they, I mean, they don't always understand what's going on inside. That's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm masking or whatever, just trying to you know deal with it, get through the day or the meeting or whatever it is. But I, I, again, it's not the hardest thing in the world that I can't deal with it. I mean, it's, it's some pain and there's a lot of rest and recovery that needs to happen with it. But for the most part, I try to, you know, go out and do some walks, you know, put some, get some kind of strength and stamina back in me, do some working out, trying to lift some weights. And I have a wife who works out all the time. We built a gym in the garage for her last year. So I have no excuse but to get out there. And it's also me being somewhat of a role model for my kids because I don't ever want them to grow up thinking that I ever gave up or quit or anything. But if they ever see anything out of me, all of a sudden just being like, you're a Marine, is that they know that we'll fight every ounce of our energy that we have to do whatever we have to do. And it's teaching them. I mean, they come out in the gym and they work out with me and they go on the walks with us and they're involved in everything we do. So they see it all the time and they hear the stories, you know, so they, they know what's going on. And uh, so we just, we just keep battling every day and keep doing what we got to do. So if I look good, you know, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> do. And you know, you're, you're, it's, it's easy to think about the things we don't have. It's, it's easy to dwell on the bad things that we have, but you know, the, the man and the goat, so to speak, he's not looking at all he doesn't have. He's looking, oh, he's, he's looking at the things that he has. Mm -hmm. And he's fortunate, he feels fortunate for those things that, that he has and that, uh, that are positive and accepts the things that aren't as positive and deals with them. Like right. a convoy going down the road past his house. I'm sure that was complete shock for him. Like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> I just remember seeing him like I made eye contact with that guy too. I'm like, what are you doing out here? <laughs> In the middle of nowhere.
and he's and he's saying this somewhere in the world, Michael. He's yeah. telling this story. I know. <laughs> I'm minding my own business. My goat and I are doing our thing, and then all yeah. of a sudden, here they come. Yeah. So, how how is this experience to this point? And, and I and I know you get this question a lot, but it's it's really I think it's a pertinent question. How has this changed your life? Not so much in the day to day, but your approach. How has it changed your attitude? Because it, you can't say that it hasn't. We know that it has. 100%. Yeah, I think if anything, if I've learned anything from the last, since January, it's, well, first off, it, it, it's how strong my wife is. I mean, I can't believe the stuff that she's put up with me in the last nine months to what we've dealt with. And the strength she has to keep me going is something that continues to give me strength to keep going, right? But of all things that I've, I've learned, I mean, it's, I've learned more patience. I've learned more of the, you know, the positive mindset really, because I was always, I always consider myself a realist. Like I wouldn't say necessarily half glass full or empty, but I would look at something saying, you know how it is, you know, we, we, we prepare for war, we pray for peace. Right. So I always in the back of my mind was always like, you know, the half, the glass is half full because we got to do A, B and C to get it to be full where my wife always looked at it kind of the other way. And I think since, January, you know, since we got this diagnosis, you know, her and I talk a lot about it. And I think we both feed off each other with a positive attitude and the positive mindset and the no quit attitude, right? I mean, it's just, like I said, failure is not an option. So I think that the things I've learned are how to keep myself in the right mindset, surround myself with the right people, cut out any kind of negativity. I mean, there's just, there's no time in this world anymore for any kind of negativity. I don't, I don't need it. I don't need to be around it. Crazy thing is when I talk to the doctors about it, they're like, yeah, that's great. You know, a lot of people don't get that. I'm like, yeah, well, I didn't get it either until somebody told me about it. And it wasn't that I was a negative person. I just always had a different mindset of, you know, you say it's going to be A, B, and C. I'm looking at D, E, and F down the road. But I think the patience and the mindset of just being positive and, um, you know, just learning how to calm down, slow down. We do a lot of things. We do a lot of different events. We go to a lot of things to help, you know, carry load, 22 kill, all the groups in town, spirit of hero, you name it. And we love being involved with that. And that stuff fuels our soul every time we get around it because it's nothing but just everybody there for the right reasons, right? You know, we're there to support each other. We're there to, you know, everybody's loving on each other. It's, it's a great time. Let's do the right thing for the right reason while we're having fun doing it that kind of stuff has taught me a lot over years, but, you know, obviously this last year has been a different kind of mindset, but I think just the whole calm down, slow down, being positive and uh, having the right mindset has been the biggest change in my life. This year. That and a diet. <laughs> Diet's been horrible, but how, that's about it. How old are your kids, Michael? I got a 13 year old son, an 11 year old daughter and a seven year old daughter. The seven year old runs our house. A 13-year-old is going to design something someday and be a billionaire. And my daughter is going to be the first woman to play in the NHL, probably. <laughs> yeah, she's a hockey geek. She has been since the day she was born. There's nothing I could do about it. Do they, do they understand? I mean, they're old enough, certainly the older ones. Do they truly understand what's going on? Yeah. I, unfortunately, you know, doing a lot of work with some of these groups we had, we've, we've lost some people along the way. And uh, Stephen Jackal was a really good friend of mine. You're, you're and, referencing 22 Kill and, and our, our uh, combating suicide right. in the uh, veteran community. 
so unfortunately we lost uh steven jackal uh three years ago but he was like the biggest you know my son loved that kid you know and it was one of those things that he had a hard time when we lost jackal my son came into my office um a couple of days afterwards and i had a picture of jackal on my computer it was me and him on top of the uh american Airlines center in dallas he was getting to repel off the roof and i had this epic photo of him going down the side of the building and my son walks in the room and he's like is that jackal I was like, yeah. He's like, man, I love that kid. When are we going to see him again? And it just like gut punch. Like I still hadn't processed what we were dealing with, you know, that we had lost him. I didn't think we had been to the funeral yet. And I told him when he was nine years old. And I swear that day I saw the innocence just come out of his face. In his days, I look back on it and I go, man, I regret that. Like I, re- I maybe bad move on my part. Maybe he was too young. I thought he was old enough and he had a hard time with it. And then you fast forward to now with what I'm dealing with. We had to sit all the kids down and tell them, hey, look, you know, you've seen that daddy's been laying down in bed a lot lately and he's not been doing well and blah, blah, blah. We had to tell him. And I, I saw again, I mean, he just covered his face and just didn't know how to process it. And he was 12 years old at the time. It's a lot to take in. My daughter, my oldest daughter, I mean, she was crying. I mean, she knew what it was, but, you know, I was still kind of new to her. And youngest, she was six at the time. She didn't comprehend. But as time has gone on, you know, they see me when I come home from treatment on Tuesdays and that I'm just sleeping because the treatment just takes everything out of you when you're in there the first day. They'll come in, help me up. After everything you drink, you need to get them for you. You know, you need help standing up. So this whole thing, I mean, cancer sucks. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And chemo is horrible. If I found anything, it's, it's really brought our family closer together. Um, not that we weren't close before because we always did everything together anyway, but I feel that there's a different kind of love in our relationship with you know my wife and my kids and everything else that we're all closer today than we were, you know, a year ago. And just because I think we all understand the severity of what I'm dealing with and that, you know, if you ever hear me saying, oh, me, 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 please correct me because that's not, I mean, because I always tell me it's we, right? It's, it's my whole family is dealing with this just, just as much as you guys are, but, you know, my whole family is dealing with this every day. They hear me moaning, they hear me bitching, they hear me crying, they hear me, you know, this hurts, that hurts, you know, they hear it every day, (laughs) whether it's my hands, my feet, my stomach, whatever. So they've learned what's going on. I think as they get older, they're going to, I wouldn't say appreciate it, but they'll have a different level of appreciation for what they actually have in life in front of them, as opposed to worrying about what I want or what I didn't get or that kind of stuff. So it's kind of a teaching moment, but wasn't obviously wasn't planned to be a teaching loan. Well, I can tell you that I've never heard you say me when it comes to that. Uh, I've always you even you even said it tonight when we got the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I'm I'm happy to slap you like you asked. I don't <laughs> sure you I'm are. Uh, I might do it just for the fun of it, just you know to see what happens. But all right, I got quick hands. I'm good to go. <laughs> Well, Michael, when you uh, when you get around to writing that book, Cancer, comma, mm-hmm. um, after we finish that one and we start helping some other people deal with this, I want to write the man, the man of the, the goat. goat. <laughs> I think it'd be a great book. <laughs> man, you uh, as always, my friend, you don't disappoint. You know, actually, to kind of take us out, I, 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 I never really heard about the, uh, 
uh, the parade. You sent me a couple of pictures and for the, you know, for those watching. Uh, oh yeah. Michael parade. A lot of his family up to the eighth and I parade. And uh, uh, you know, that was something that we were trying to navigate. How was it? It was amazing. I mean, I think that everybody who ever grows up in the Marine Corps should see it. And I'd seen the Silence of Platoon before at, uh, I think it was like the USS Constitution. They were in Boston for something and we went and checked them out. It was like Marine Week or something like that. And it was awesome to see. I mean, my wife loved it and kids loved it, but I always wanted to go to 8th and I. I always wanted to go to the Friday Night Parade and go to the Sunset Parade and go check it out. And we were going to go last year. So I have, I have a friend that I went to boot camp with that to this day, him and I are still best friends. And his dad was a chief warrant officer in the Marine Corps. His grandfather was a Korean War Marine. So he comes from a long lineage of Marines. So a couple of years ago, I was on vacation with them. And uh, my friend's dad was about to retire. And uh, my friend and his sister were like, what should we get for him when he retires? I said, man, your grandfather has a brick at the Marine Corps Museum. And I think what you guys should do is get a brick for your dad at the Marine Corps Museum. I think it would be an awesome gift and get it next to your grandfather. What the girls did behind our back is like two years later, friend, my wife, and my friend's sister got bricks for all three of us. And they put all three of our bricks together on the walk outside of the Marine Corps Museum. So we went there last year to go visit it, but because of COVID, they were closed. We also had tickets to go to 8th and I last year, and because of COVID, we couldn't get in. So this year, being able to go back and have the kids with us, go to the Marine Corps Museum, see the bricks, do the museum with the kids so they could see all that stuff, and then take them to 8th and I, I, it was just one of the coolest things I'd ever seen. I mean, the lights go down and you just hear the slapping and the popping. And I looked at my friend, I was like, dude, I'm so excited right now. I'm like, I'm just so, this is amazing. Like I've been waiting to see something like this for you know 20 years, but to be able to do it there was unbelievable. I mean, I wish I could have gone last week when Woody and Kyle and a couple of the Medal of Honor recipients and stuff were there. And I talked to a friend of ours and he, he asked me if he wanted to go and I would love to, but it just work wasn't going to allow me to get up there for that. But it's such an amazing experience. That I think that every Marine should experience it at 8th and I at least once. And I'm looking forward to going back next year. I mean, it's our, it's our 4th of July trip. We go to DC. So we can go up there again next year and check it out. We'll take the kids out there. My son got to go get his picture with Chesty after the parade. So we had a blast. It was absolutely amazing. Instead of any Marines never been to it, it has to be on a bucket list of things to go check out. Just the, the history and, 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 you know, the whole, pomp and stance and the whole thing that we learned from like, you know, day one of boot camp, learning how to drill. It's just I'm like, I don't think there's a Marine in this world that doesn't still walk around every once in a while calling cadence in their head because I do. If I'm doing a run or something like that, I'm like, what am I doing? You know, but it's just one of those things. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an experience. That's, that's for sure to go see that thing. It's a, it was awesome. I loved it. Well, and, and I, uh, I would encourage every American to see it because it oh. really kind of just, it, it, it makes you walk a little taller, makes you feel a little prouder. Absolutely. That, you know, it's not that they're any different than, than any other American. They're just the example of what happens when you give some young men a mission, a, a very clear mission, you give them some discipline mm -hmm. and you give them the, uh, uh, you know, the latitude to go out and make it happen. They're going to do it. And it's, it's a great example. So how many years did you do up there? I was there for three years. Wow. And it was, it was, uh, it was, it was, Everything you're talking about, I mean, I, I still get geeked when I see it. I still, um, you know, all, all those things. I mean, so I, I understand, you know, how, how you feel when I felt that way for, you know, still after all these years. 
and after having done it so many times. It's just cool walking around, even outside. All the Marines all out there, you know, just saying hi to people. I mean, it's just Marines everywhere in dress blues. And you got Sons of Platoon running over afterwards to get over to, you know, their barracks. And we were going to like the staff and seal hall, just go hang out for a little bit, go get some gifts or anything. And it's just, it's one of those things that when you get out, you look back and you kind of appreciate that stuff just a little bit more than you did even when you were in. Because you're like, man, that was a period of my life, but it was a big period of my life. and even though I wasn't at eighth and I, or, you know, whatever, you still feel like that. Well, that's, that's me. That's who I am. That's, that's where we come from. Like I was saying earlier about how we have a legacy to uphold. It's the same thing with those guys who they, they put that on display in front of people every day. And I just, I think it's thing too that like every American should like when they do eighth grade field trips to DC, they should bring in all those kids right into eighth and I and have them go watch that just to have a new level of respect of like, that's badass. You know, that's not a bad idea. Flipping around. Yeah, it should be. Watching the weapons just flying all over the place, too. I mean, we had people up there with us who, like my kids, who had never really seen it before, but they were like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Like, how do they do that? I'm like, years and years and years of hard work. And we took it used it as a teaching moment. I'm looking at my kids like, hey, you want to do this and you want to do that? I want to take that kind of hard work. My daughter, after the gymnastics for the Olympics, she's like, I want to be in the Olympics. I'm like, okay, you're only seven. It's going to be a little while ago, but you know, it's hard work. You, you can't just... You can't half-ass it when you show up to practice. Like, let's get there and do it. Like, if you want to do it, you got to do it. But, yeah, that uh, that stuff is awesome to go see. Well, Michael, I, I appreciate you uh, taking time to be with us. And uh, uh, please give Gabriella my best. And, and, Will do. and just, uh, I'm, You got so many people in your corner, you don't even realize it. And so, as always, you know, if there's anything that I can do personally, I'm a phone call away. And Absolutely. I can, I can tell you there's a lot of people who feel that way about you, Marie. I'll say, I'll say this is in closing too, that uh, to anybody who watches this and all of the people who have supported us, dude, the words thank you aren't enough for us. All these nonprofits we work with, Carrot of Load, Spirit of Hero, 22 Kill, Adaptive Training Foundation, you, you name it. They've all stepped up. They've all reached out. They've all constantly sent me text messages. I keep certain people in the loop of like what's going on. And the... The messages of the the love and the hope and the, you know respect from everybody has just been overwhelming, and I can't say thank you enough on behalf of like me and my family. But you know you know you, we love you guys and everything, and just just thank you. Like it's it's been amazing. I wish it didn't happen this way, but it is what it is. But we'll just uh, we'll keep doing what we got to do, and uh, we'll be there. Don't worry about it. Don't worry, you're gonna win. We all know mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Well. You know, we all, we always try to, to sign off, uh, you know, with, uh, with the common theme of, you know, who you're carrying. So, you know, if you would tell us who you're carrying each day, man, I, I think Stephen Jackal was, you know, he started in the United States army and he was somebody that, uh, I became really close with, you know, before we lost him a couple of years ago, I actually have, uh, right in front of me, I have a, a Jersey that, uh, Dallas stars actually put together with his name on it, um, sitting in my office. So I look at it every single day. Um, to all the other, you know, brothers and sisters that we lost, uh, you know, combat and the, you know, unfortunately the veteran suicide epidemic that we deal with, you know, they're always in our hearts and prayers. And it's not that Stephen was any more special than anybody else. Just that I think that Stephen's impact on my life had, he had such a huge impact in my life that every year we go out, he's the, he's the first name that I put down that we're carrying. Michael, thank you. I appreciate you uh, sharing everything with us and can't wait to see you again and give you a big hug, Marie. Looking forward to seeing you, Todd.
And for everybody out there today, we, uh, we do appreciate you uh, joining us. And just remember, there's always one question that you need to ask yourself and ask others around you. And that is, who are you carrying?